Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor at large for Sports Pro. Joining me this time, delighted to have Sports Pro editor Michael Long. How are you doing, Mike? I'm very well, Owen. How are you doing? I am doing well. A little bit later on, we're going to be hearing from uh, Jeremy Waite, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for IBM Watson. He's going to be talking about AI and big data and lots of scary tech concepts. But uh, before that, Mike, I believe you have an old-fashioned print magazine out. We do. We do. We have uh, issue 102 of Sports Pro, uh, currently with the printers. It's our Sportel edition, so all things broadcast and digital media yeah new media and old media together magazine for those of you who aren't familiar with the concept think of it like an offline website with nicer pictures uh or like an industry event that you can carry around in your it's, bag it certainly smells better than uh than digital media yeah yeah won't ask how you know that but uh as you mentioned uh it's it's very much focused on the broadcast sector, the emerging digital broadcast sector in particular, some very, very big names in there. But on the cover is that upstart 11. Mm. Yeah, so obviously, what is it now, three years into the 11 Sports project, uh, they've fittingly launched now in 11 markets, uh, the most recent being the UK and Portugal. Obviously, very important markets strategically for them. They've picked up some uh, some premium rights in both markets, uh, including the Champions League and La Liga um, in Portugal. Uh, recently um, acquired uh, UFC in the UK as well. So, yeah, speaking to uh, three of the kind of um, head guys there, in Mark Watson, Danny Menken and, and um, uh, Pedro Pinto, who uh, listeners of this podcast I'm sure will be familiar with. So yeah, speaking to them about their, their, their aims and objectives and their strategy in, in both of those markets. And uh, um, yeah, they, it's fair to say they had some, some interesting things to say about the, the state of play in, in both markets. Obviously, quite a different situation across both countries. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's well worth a read, if I do say so myself. Mm. And it's always been quite a flexible approach, or I should say through those three years, it's been quite a flexible approach they've taken from market to market. It can broadly be summarised by saying that they tend to take big rights in small markets and small rights in big markets. The UK a bit of a departure from that because they launched with uh, with those acquisitions of La Liga, which we'll come to in just a sec, um, and the USPGA Championship in golf. Mm-hmm. Specifically, what are their expectations for the UK? They're, they're, you know, they're coming into a territory with two very established powers, one very big hitter indeed, which we'll discuss a little bit uh, later on in, in this podcast. Uh, what do they think they can achieve here? Uh, you know, as you say, I think they've taken a very kind of localised approach largely to their to their production and their programming, but they have sought to acquire some, some marquee rights, um, build their service around that. So I think um, in terms of what they're trying to achieve in the UK, I think it broadly follows a similar blueprint to their other markets in that they are, you know, openly a consumer orientated business they they want to i think their their strap line is for the fans they want to come in 
offer a subscription, um, no strings attached, uh, you know, pay monthly, cancel any time kind of model, which uh, people in this market certainly are familiar with. You know, they're not um, expecting to come in and, and, and make big big outlays, I suppose, on on the likes of the Premier League uh, within within the UK and Ireland. So I think, um, you know, they'll, they'll snaffle what they can get their hands on. UFC being a prime example, that's no longer going to be with BT Sport from next year. Eleven has picked those rights up. Um, you know, they've had their had their challenges uh, upon launch. Obviously, their their PJ Championship uh, streams encountered you know some problems, um, muffled sound and and lags in street in, in the streams and things. Almost par for the course for these new digital players. Um, but yeah, I think they they feel they can capture some market share pretty quickly. And you know, I know Mark Watson certainly has uh, performed this trick before with BT. So I think they know know what the score is. They know um, what they need to do, and they're they're pretty ambitious. Uh, UFC, uh, kind of a timely acquisition. I think it will be quite interesting to see where that goes after the uh, the circus or disgrace, depending on what end of the outrage spectrum you sit on uh, between uh, Conor McGregor and you're going to need to pronounce the opponent's name. Let's just call him Khabib. Yeah, <laughs> between those two last weekend. But yeah, another kind of very captive, very committed audience for that sport. So it will be interesting to see what they do with that. I, I think it will. Sorry to, to inter- interrupt, but I think, um, you know, no matter what their... Uh, what rights they've acquired, I suppose, their approach is very much, and uh, you know, they, and the guys there won't necessarily describe them as such, but they are disruptors by definition, you know, new market entrants, and they want to do do things a little bit differently. I know uh, Pinto was kind of explaining their approach to um, to the UEFA Champions League, and and from next year, Formula One as well in Portugal. You know, just he, he spoke of kind of bringing a more of a you know, entertainment value and uh, and putting the putting the fans at the heart of of, of, the, of the programming of the of the content they create, uh, which is something that's never really been done. Certainly in Portugal, where things can be quite serious. I think he uses the word serious, and you know, culturally they, you know, it's 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 focusing on the kind of political side of certainly of football, but of sport in general, and and some of the kind of heavier heavier going stuff. So they just want to lighten it up a bit and um you know bring bring the fans into the into the game more you know having setting up studios pitch side and and you know i'm sure they'll they'll have similar plans for for formula one perhaps in the paddock and things like that yeah and they've already been pretty disruptive in the uk disruptive being one way of putting it they've uh, they've taken their size tens to the ancient in broadcasting terms 3pm blackout in english soccer uh showing La Liga games between the hours of, of 3 and 5 o'clock on a Saturday, which is very much taboo in uh, in this country, as years old. I think it dates back to the 1960s, the, the very, very beginning of kind of live club football in, on, on British television to protect match day audiences and, and match day uh, and weekend participation. Andrea Radrazzani, the, uh, the paymaster behind Eleven Sports, speaking in his capacity as the owner of Leeds United at a... Uh, a sports, uh, little-known sports industry conference. Um, will we mention it? We'll mention it. It's leaders uh, this week in uh, Stamford Bridge. Um, you know, was discussing that, and also the, uh, the the communications officer for La Liga coming out in support of this stance and saying that the the three pm blackout is something from 
uh, another era, I think it was that he said. A, a different age, I think it was. Different yeah. age, um, which I think is is fair. I mean, whether whether that's the way of kind of, um, of, of coming into a new era to just unilaterally start showing games <laughs> in that period, I don't know. But it's definitely something that that lots of people have talked about reviewing for a very long time, and I suppose having a new uh, a new entrant come in and and address it in that manner um, is is something that you know the, the the UK broadcasting industry will will want to respond to now and will want to think about how it affects the rest of how we show football in this country. Um, it might be something that has implications for kind of the next set of certainly Premier League rights deals if, if the likes of Amazon are, are more deeply involved um, and for, for the EFL as well. Yeah, it's interesting to know where you stand on the issue. Obviously, from you can see it from, from multiple angles. You know, you see, obviously, the, the Premier League and, and the FA, you know, will voice their protestations against uh, a broadcaster coming in and, and um, showing games during the blackout. You know, they always argue the case of, of you know, keeping attendances high at, 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 uh, in, in the stadiums and um, making sure that, you know, they don't encroach on that, I suppose. But um, you can see it from certainly from a... From a um, broadcaster's perspective that is forking out for these for some of these rights um you know i know uh, so mark watson at 11 for example argued uh you know the the impact that the blackout has on on piracy ultimately and he called mm. it a ridiculous situation where you 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 can't you can't watch uh games during this this blackout and and most fans now are watching uh, well, not most fans, but a, a huge number of fans are, you know, still watching games live. They're just going to illegal streams, and um, you know, he, he his his message was ultimately a kind of a, a warning to some of these rights holders that if they don't kind of clamp down on it and start thinking differently and, and um, remove their head from the sand, then you know, the value of their rights ultimately won't uh, won't sustain in future. Um, obviously, piracy, you know, is a scourge. Um, something has to be done about that. Um, so you can kind of see see both sides of it. So it'd be interesting to hear, hear your thoughts, really. I mean, is this something? Is this blackout something that can be, uh, you know, continue to be maintained long into the future, or will will we see a change in in the next couple of years? I'll be honest. It's not my favourite concept in the world, and I think it has a lot of drawbacks. Piracy being one of them. The other one is the the number of slots kind of popping up through the week for live football whether it's in uh, in the football league or in the EFL uh, or in the Premier League and there's only so many times you can expect the match day fan to change their lives uh, and to, to organise their lives around going to games um, and the idea of kind of fans from uh, you know from the north of England travelling down to London or, or to Southampton or to wherever and vice versa to watch a game on a Friday night, watch a game on a Monday night, watch a game on a Tuesday or Thursday or a Saturday, you know, Sunday noon, I think was, uh, was Arsenal Fulham last weekend. Um, these are not sociable times. Whereas I think for most people, the Saturday 3 PM, it evolved as the kind of primary kickoff point because that's when most people can attend games. Um, without having to worry too much about transport or how they organise their lives around that. So, you know, that that's kind of reaching a bit of a breaking point as well. Um, but I think the way to go about it ultimately is going to be to bring everybody, all the stakeholders, um, 
for want of a better word, around the table and, and discuss what the best path forward is to, to kind of protect that, that kickoff time, um, give the broadcasters what they want in terms of access to audiences, give you know, clubs and fans what they want in terms of what that match day is like. But anyway, it's, it's, it's quite something that they've managed in the space of just a few weeks to, uh, to challenge that so fundamentally. Um, right, let's, let's have a look through the rest of issue 102. Anyone else that you want to pick out there, Mike? Yeah, so um, as always for our Sportel edition, it is a, a packed issue. Um, we've got um, uh, in-depth features on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, you know, obviously, Disney's new um, direct-to-consumer streaming service, um, which has just hit the one... A million subscriber milestone. We have got a lovely profile that you put together, Owen, on uh, Sky Sports Managing Director Barney Francis, mm -hmm. which is a fantastic read as always. Um, Overwatch. We have uh, we have a lovely piece on Overwatch and the Grand Finals and their uh, the Overwatch League primetime TV debut on ESPN. Elsewhere, we have uh, DAZN uh, and their activities in the US, building their programming lineup and their uh, portfolio of rights around uh, fight sports, specifically boxing and MMA. I'm sure listeners will be aware that DAZN signed a, a big um, partnership with Matrim Boxing to create Matrim Boxing USA, a joint venture there worth about a um, billion dollars to stage a number of fights and, and broadcast those. Um, DAZN are quite a nice counterpoint or, you know, complement to talking about 11 Again, a kind of multi-territory, pure OTT. In fact, more than more so than eleven, because eleven in some markets will uh, have kind of traditional pay TV channels on satellite or cable or whatever the dominant uh, distribution network is in that country. Um, but DAZN working solely in the digital space and and making a very very big splash in in the US. I mean, there was an awful lot of coverage um, and and a lot of marketing around that Joshua Povetkin fight here in London yeah. a few weeks ago um, where you saw you know little clips like Michael Buffer the ring announcer trying to wrap his his famous tones around that quite extraordinary name and I'm still I'm still undecided on whether that's a stroke of genius to to go with that uh, that moniker rather than something that's a little bit more uh, a little bit more intuitive but um you know, and DAZN also absorbing the, the Perform brand now as well and, and not being kind of a Perform group project, but, uh, but now being kind of the, the main focus uh, of what that group of, of companies does. Um, some fascinating stuff. I mean, the, the fact that, again, they've kind of identified uh, a core audience that's not maybe served as well as it, as it might be in the US. Um, they've attached themselves to kind of the rising force maybe in, in world boxing in, in the shape of Matrim and, and Anthony Joshua. And their entry coincides with HBO deciding after 45 years, their first their first fight, having been Joe Frazier against, uh, against a young man named George Foreman way back in the early 70s, um, deciding that they didn't want to be involved in, in live boxing and, and as a consequence in live sports anymore. So you have quite a significant... Yeah. Uh, era in American broadcasting comes to an end as, as another one perhaps begins. 
Yeah, it's an, an interesting um, you know market dynamic, I suppose. There in the HBO stepping away, DAZN coming in, obviously ESPN, um, big new deal with uh, obviously UFC from from next year, but um, ESPN kind of lending their weight behind top ranked boxing. Um, so obviously heating up on the on the digital you know digital landscape is heating up in in boxing in the US. Um, I think um, you know DAZN's kind of USP, as it always is. As you say, they're a pure kind of OTT sports player. I know Eddie Hearn was uh, speaking before the Perfect, uh, Joshua Povetkin fight about how the um, pay-per-view model will will end in tears due to what he sees as uh, kind of over overkill or oversaturation on both sides of the Atlantic. Really, um, a lot of um, fights taking place. You know. Uh, on pay-per-view that aren't necessarily box box office material, uh, ultimately kind of harms the, the fighters more than anyone else. Um, so DAZN, again, you know, much like Eleven, wanting to bring us this kind of consumer-first um, uh, model to a, to a new market, which is, a, you know, a, a huge market. I think we're all aware of that. Um, and I think specifically in the US, obviously, so a lot of the, the, the major... Uh, major league rights are, are obviously tied up to, until 2022, 2023, around that time. Um, so it would be interesting to see how their service kind of um, builds and, and grows over the next couple of years. Uh, could they potentially make a play for a, for a package of rights to something like the NFL or NBA? Uh, that, that could be something that they're, they're working towards. I know, obviously, when they launched in, in, in Canada last year, um, they launched with NFL Game Pass, so it's it's very much kind of testing the water with the with the major leagues at the moment. But um, perhaps doing something on a larger scale, as they're doing with Matchroom, uh, could be a kind of proof of concept that um, that pays off in what four or five years time. Yeah, and they have done it elsewhere. I mean, they picked up you know, the UEFA Champions League in a few places. They, of course, in, in Japan they have the J League, so they're not strangers to to making a play for, for major rights in the domestic market. Then we have in the magazine um, and in the marketplace uh, two much more established players approaching with with differing degrees of confidence, I think, the digital age. So one of them, uh, you mentioned them there, is ESPN. Um, <coughs> and we have the kind of the Disney, Disney digital player or has, uh, Disney streaming program. services is their new their newly branded uh, division that is obviously um, it kind of houses Bamtech which uh, Disney acquired what was it last year they acquired a majority stake so Disney streaming services now incorporates Bamtech and obviously ESPN plus and um, from next year the new Disney branded entertainment streaming service um, which is obviously um, Cause a stir in the entertainment world in that Disney are pulling programming from from Netflix. So, yeah, Disney streaming services is is, is the name. Um, and that a response to to declining subscriber numbers for ESPN, um, or at least the, you know the ESPN element of it. Um, and you know, in in the entertainment space, massive changes in terms of how people are watching things that we do not need to go over again. But obviously, Disney probably one of the few companies with the clout to go in there and, and make a significant difference uh, to the way that people watch in that kind of small bore subscriber market um, alongside the likes of Netflix and, and Amazon. Uh, in the UK, a broadcaster that maybe a couple of years ago would have been looking over its shoulder, maybe it's less so now, you alluded to, to it earlier, is, uh, is Sky Sports and Barney Francis. 
profile in the magazine will also be appearing at the Sports Pro OTT Summit in Madrid uh, in November, um, alongside a hell of a number of people discovering PGA Tours, talking about their, their joint golf project. Um, you know, we've got 11 sports there as well. UEFA, Team Marketing, uh, their agency partners. Um, mm. Turner Sports, I think, is another one. We've got NBC Sports Group. Um, Comcast, of course, uh, linked, well, not just linked, but set to complete a, a 40 billion takeover at the group level of Sky. The Olympic Channel and the IOC, uh, Olympic Channel, uh, are, are generous hosts once again for the event. Uh, BT Sport, a hell of a, a, hell of a broad uh, and deep variety of, uh, of speakers, and I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating couple of days in Madrid on the 28th and 29th of November. Uh, if you're interested in joining us, sportspro-ott.com is the website. There will be links there to take you through to registration and passes and all the rest of it. So I, I, I strongly encourage you to do that. But yeah, Sky Sports have, have been involved in that space uh, for, for quite a while. And this is something that, you know, Barney Francis is always very forthright when it comes to defending Sky's record and its, um, and its performance. Um, you know, pointing out that Sky Go has been in operation since about 2011. Uh, now TV, which is Sky's kind of OTT offering before it was called as such, it's kind of stripped back, you know, non-subscription service, uh, pay-as-you-go uh, in the UK was, was launched, I think, in 2012. Um, and that's the, the reminder is that the big broadcasters still have a big advantage in this space in terms of understanding delivery, in terms of having the means to kind of uh, to launch new projects and to pick up rights. Um, so for all the excitement that there is around new things that are happening in the industry, it's, it's probably going to be the case quite a lot of the time that, that the big media companies will just adopt these technologies or buy up players or do whatever they have to do to stay ahead. And, and we will change how we're watching, but we won't necessarily change uh, what we're watching it or who we're watching it with. Mm. And what what is um, you know what is Barney's plan to you know to fend off some of this you know whilst they are the, the dominant market player what, what what's his plan to kind of fend off the challenge from some of these emerging services like Amazon and, and like Eleven mm. um, you know to stay ahead of the game obviously they have lost lost certain rights they've obviously retained certain rights as well how does he see it I think they have a very strong sense and you know. As I say, he's, he's a staunch defender of, of their record. Uh, but they have a very strong sense of what their priorities are. Um, Premier League football has always been the biggest thing, and they have remained, for all the kind of talk about how much has been spent on it, um, they've remained the primary broadcast partner of, of the Premier League for another three years. They've always had the most games. When they were able to be an exclusive partner, they were an exclusive partner. When they when you know uh, regulations were introduced to stop that happening they still took the maximum number of games available and that's happened again this year uh, they now of course have these these vertical channels some of which are single sport um, some of which are single series in the case of Premier League and, and Sky Sports F1 which is also tied to the channel which is also a, a key driver of, uh, of subscriptions which is really what they care about more than anything else what's going to get somebody to stump up uh, you know, 40, 50 pounds a month or whatever the latest rate is for, for getting the Sky Sports channels. You know, other sports that they've 
they've uh, stripped out into these channels cricket, which again they've they've secured as close to an exclusive deal as is available with the ECB. Um, spent a lot of money doing that, seeing off of BT Sport. That I think is their their second uh, driver of, of subscriptions after football in the sports space. Um, golf as well. You know, um, they signed up a number of, of key deals. Um, Discovery picked up the, the PGA Tour rights, of course, in a, in a global deal, but the likelihood is that they will go back to Sky uh, and, and sell those rights back to them in a couple of years' time when that deal expires in the UK. Um, so I think, basically, they have a huge financial advantage and they have a, a, a sense of, you know, kind of pragmatic sense of what is worth them retaining and what is not worth them retaining. And, you know, it doesn't matter how many people, for example, watch La Liga on Sky, um, it's the number of people who choose to pay for a Sky subscription because La Liga is on the platform. That's the number that they're looking at and they probably, when they're valuing some of these rights deals and, and, and what outlay is worth it, that's, that's how they make that decision, basically. And the other thing is that, and it's, it's something that HBO will have looked at and it's something that bigger media groups that work in sport as well, whether it's Disney or whoever it is, will be weighing up as well, is, is the value of original programming now is, is changing. Now that, you know, that market's stabilised, now that you have actually kind of the stimulus of stuff like Netflix and Amazon Prime kind of buying up programming, investing in original programming, being able to come up with properties that, you know, an IP that is, is internationally popular is a very lucrative thing to do. So Sky is now, as a group, investing more in original programming. And so when it loses, say, a Champions League rights race, then that money goes back into, into original programming rather than back into the rights pot. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's just a, a kind of a rebalancing of priorities, but it doesn't mean that, that they're not going to still be the kind of the number one in the market. But anyway, I think that is probably about enough for, for this part of the podcast. Um, join us in just a couple of moments. We'll be talking to IBM's Jeremy Waite. ago now a couple of weeks ago end of last month end of september beautiful yeah. pair of september days at lord's cricket ground yeah, it was lovely wasn't it it was really lovely it was uh, it was very confusing for me i just i just come back from uh from my honeymoon and i was expecting much worse weather in the uk um but it was glorious um cricket match going on on the nursery ground people enjoying you know an idyllic late summer day in London or early autumn day in London and enjoying some some top quality networking and some top quality content on stage at the brand conference the fifth edition of the brand conference sports pros event for the sponsorship and marketing sector some fascinating stuff in there that's also covered I believe in issue 102 of sports pro yes indeed yes indeed it is yeah some fantastic uh, some fantastic sessions personal highlights I would say Benjamin Stoll, head of digital, uh, uh, I'm not sure if that's his, his exact um, uh, job title, but head of digital at Bayern Munich was uh, fascinating. Really, really um, Jeremy Waite, who we're going to hear from shortly, also fascinating. 
uh, real big picture kind of future thoughts stuff, uh, which is always, always welcome at a sports industry conference. Um, and then we had Copper 90, which I know uh, generated quite a bit of discussion on the on the conference floor. Yeah. Uh, what were your thoughts on, on Copper 90? I very much enjoyed that. I think it was... Um... Uh, it, it was it was a bit different. So it was uh, James Kirkham, who we have heard from quite a bit in this kind of setting before, the the head of Copper Ninety, um, and uh, one of his one of the faces of the channel, uh, David Vuj uh, Vujanic, I think I've got that right. Uh, he was he was on on very very good form. I guess boiling down what a lot of the kind of the brand relationship with with uh, with programmers and the uh, the influencer space and, and kind of cutting through a lot of what that really means and yeah uh, authenticity is authenticity. The, uh, away, the word of the day I think yeah but peeling away some of the peeling away some of the management speak and the the, the you know the marketing speaking and getting to the core of really what that relationship is with the brand which is you know kind of working together to get your message to someone and doing it in an entertaining way um, hey well. Yeah. But what is time? I don't know. Uh, it was a question that he asked, but I do know that we, we do need to kind of carry on with this podcast and not get too... Maybe one for another time. In such matters, yeah. Yeah, quite. Um, but of course, one of the things that comes away from, from a conference like that is that perhaps the end goals don't particularly change in, in something like sponsorship. But what does change is, is the context in which you're operating um, technology has really, really thrown up a new set of, of challenges and, and an environment that I don't think a lot of people have yet come to terms with and also is going to change again a hell of a lot in the next few years. Uh, one of the technologies that's going to do that is artificial intelligence. IBM have spent an awful lot of money uh, in research and development on AI uh, and on the kind of quantum computing tech that is going to be needed to, to keep up with it and to keep teaching it. It's got a whole broad range of uses. It's going to really reshape uh, a lot of industries and it's really going to change the way I think that, that people communicate with consumers. Um, and as you mentioned, Jeremy Waite, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for IBM Watson, he's a podcast host himself, uh, puts out the 10 Words podcast for anyone who wants to listen to that and learn a bit more about big data. He set us off at Lord's with his keynote speech and before that he sat down with me to talk a bit about the IBM Watson project uh, and to talk a bit about what AI is going to do in the sports and entertainment space. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Jeremy Waite. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of IBM Watson Customer Engagement for Europe. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Uh, first of all, what does IBM see in sport as a platform to communicate some of the work that it's, that it's doing with Watson? Um, I'm not sure. We have IBM Sports and Entertainment, which is a huge division of what we do, but I, I don't really distinguish between one industry and the other as such, because whether we're looking at fans or consumers, you know, whether you're looking at people across education or sort of non-profits, the main thing is how that behavior is changing really fast. And now obviously there's pockets in sports because audiences are so emotional. Um, we used to call it at Facebook actually years ago, the passion pillars. You know, anything to do with music, TV, fashion, film, and sport are the most emotional, and they're the ones that change their behaviors the quickest. So we've certainly got some stuff that we're talking at the conference today that skews towards that. But really, it's exactly the same challenges that 
Nike's facing and Coca-Cola and Unilever and Vodafone and British Airways. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's to kind of narrow things down to sports sometimes is a little bit too much. And, and the only reason I say that, and I say this with all respect, I think there's a lot of sports brands that because of the level of engagement they've got and the level of passion, right, that the fans are directing towards them, it's really easy to have a certain amount of complacency that you think everything's going great. And it's just now, how do we use some of our investment to do things a bit faster? And for some of the sports brands that I work with, and I say some very loosely, um, there is an element of what we're doing is okay. It's business as usual, we just go faster. Uh, and I don't know that that's the case. In fact, the line that we're opening up the conference with today is that the world is gonna change more over the next five years than it has over the last 20. So really, it's more about disruption, like new ways of working, you know, that make the old things completely obsolete. So in sports, that's my agenda. It's like, how do I inspire people within sports, certainly within brand marketing, to realize this is all changing faster than you expected and you need to keep up. So when you're, um, when you're working either with a, a rights holder in sport or a, an actor in another, uh, another entertainment space, hmm. how do you identify what their needs are and how do you... Uh, understand what you're able to do with, with Watson and, and, mm. and address those needs? That's a really, really good question, actually. And the presentation that we've done at the conference today, I, I, it was a little bit cheeky, but I titled it Survival of the Fastest, um, around the idea that people need to keep up. And the reason I say that is because now attention spans are so ridiculously short. I'm sure we all, you've all heard the stats, and it's, you know, attention spans are less than that of a goldfish and stuff. The, the biggest challenge that you have within sports, more than anywhere else, I think, it's a battle for eyeballs, and it's a battle for attention. In fact, the World Cup's a perfect example. We've just done a great partnership with FIFA, um, Fox Sports, so we're gonna talk about it today, the, the FIFA World Cup highlight machine. Now you look at that, and that's really about how do you provide the most compelling fan experience in the shortest amount of time to get the highest level of engagement. That's exactly the same with what we've done at Wimbledon, with what we're doing with the US Open, with the RFU, certainly what's happened with FIFA. And if you look at some of the stats, the headline stats are phenomenal, right? 3.4 billion people watched the World Cup, you know, whatever, 46% of the world's population. When you actually dig into some of those stats, you know, some of those stats show that somebody could have watched a game, one game, for the whole championship, the whole tournament, for one minute. And that counts as a view. So when we talk about, you know, how to get through to the deep-rooted needs and how something like Watson can help, it's like, well, how do you drive that engagement by trying to provide a more compelling experience? So, for example, something like the FIFA World Cup highlight machine, how does that keep someone's attention for three minutes? So whilst you've got 3.4 billion people allegedly watching, you've got an audience of 280 million, say, in the US that are online. So how does Fox Sports provide a really compelling fan experience for those people? And here's the key. This is why Fox have done such a great job. Because what they've done is they've also not asked for people's information first. You know? And you kind of take that for granted. I mean, I think a few years ago, I remember when Manchester City changed their website, and it was just unheard of. The fact that you didn't have to log in, and you got access to all the video content and behind the scenes of the players. When the, I think it was Polk redesigned their website. And I'm from Salford, I'm from Manchester, and I remember a lot of my Man United friends. They're looking at the Man United website, and you've got to log in, and then you've got paywall, then you've got Audi, then you've got tag, and you had all these hurdles to get through to see the content. And it's like the brand that wants something in return for a bit of data, whereas Man City was just like, look, we'll give you a great experience. Here's some cool stuff, and then we help you engage. And as a result, 
web traffic engagement and merchandise shot, shot through the roof and it's become a case study ever since. And I think even though that was Man City quite a few years ago, almost a decade ago, that lesson is one that a lot of sports brands haven't still figured out yet. It's like we need to create more value than we capture. I think a lot of media broadcasters are too quick to try and capture data before they create value for the fan. Mm. And what role is AI going to play in things from there? When, when you've got um, fans' data, when you've got fans' mm. attention, what's it going to teach us about the relationship between fans and the sports that they enjoy watching? I think that the best thing it's going to teach you really is understanding the emotional, behavioural economics of the way that large groups of people do what they do. So to bring it back to why this is a shift in the industry at the moment, why it's changing so fast, um, there's a great line. In fact, it was a data scientist from Uber, a guy called Brad Voyek, and he said that we used to need to know everything about everybody, like traditional CRM, personalization. Now we just need to know a few things about a lot of people. So you take that for an audience, for say a sports audience, really what that means is, I don't need to know everything about you, so everything that lives in your database. Your email, mobile, date of birth, city, where you're from, all your normal you know, demographics. What if I don't need to know that anymore? So my CRM isn't as important, but if I know five anonymous attributes, and I know how those anonymous attributes match to millions of other fans, I can make pretty good assumptions over the type of experience I should give you. Now, we could overlay weather with that. We could see how, um, how audiences are responding emotionally in real time. That could be social media. It could be video views. It could be understanding sentiment of voice. When you're working with um, a chatbot, for example, like Fred that we did for Wimbledon. So AI is able to understand the emotional behaviors behind the scenes. Now, that whole trend, which is still an emerging trend, by the way, it's called personification. And it's crucial. Very few people understand it. Um, Gartner talk about it quite a lot as being one of the most important emerging technologies. And in fact, they have a hype cycle that talks about all these trends. And basically, all it says is 95% of the industry isn't aware that this is a big trend for the next five years. And the purest definition of that trend, personification, which is perfect for sports, is how do you provide the right experience to the right fan on the right channel when you don't have any of their personally identifiable information? So in a world where it's 2018, going into 2019, and 55% of consumers, including fans, don't want to give any personally identifiable data to marketers, AI is the only way that you can get over that hurdle. That's why I said this is disruptive. This is a new way of thinking. Because now you've got that personalization piece of right message, right person, right the stuff we've been doing forever. That's great. But now we've got this piece that comes before it, and GDPR and all of that's had a big part to play in that where consumers are going, no, give me something cool first, you know. Give me amazing video highlights on Wimbledon.com. Give me a FIFA World Cup highlight machine or whatever. And then maybe I'll give you my information afterwards. And when you've got millions, millions of fans, humans can't keep up. And most of the marketing teams I've seen, even at the biggest brands in the world, their teams are just not big enough to keep up. Wimbledon, great example, 70 million fans. Most of them are loyal for three weeks of the year. They're not tennis fans, they're Wimbledon fans. AI can cope with that many people in real time to free up the Wimbledon team to do cool stuff somewhere else. And it automates a lot of the stuff that the team historically got bogged down with. So it is a conversation about automation, but it's really, it's like you're treating AI more like an IA. It's not actually artificial intelligence. It's more like an intelligent assistant that helps you do your job faster. 
you know what I mean? And when you look at it like that, I think it's beautiful, man. I just think it reframes the conversation. Is that something that's just going to change the way that sport is sold, or is that something that could eventually change what the product is when you understand what um, what big groups of fans are getting out of a format? Say, I mean, we're here at Lords where they've been talking about the 100, which is a kind of, I don't want to make that a speculative thing that we, we, we talk about further, but, um, you know, is it something that's going to change the way that entertainment is produced and, and that sport is constructed? I think so. Um, I think that's a really good point because what AI is able to do, and when you've got an element of a, of a technology driven by machine learning that at some point is going to teach itself, but at the beginning it has low levels of confidence and it needs a lot of people to train it, right? But whether that's creating, um, optimizing your paid media, whether that's looking at different brand sponsorships, whether that's providing a different dynamic experience on a website or a device or a smart TV or whatever it is. The fact that AI in real time can change most of that stuff without having to rely on agencies. You know, I'll come back to Wimbledon. All the highlights last year, 100% were created by AI. No human involvement whatsoever. Now this year we went one stage further and did all the video highlights in less than 15 minutes. Fees up the team to go and do other cool stuff. Now, when you look at, well, to answer your question, like, well, what does that mean for the future of sports, entertainment, and broadcasting? Wimbledon doesn't want to be a championships of a tennis club, right? The All England Long Tennis Club. Wimbledon wants to take on the BBC and ESPN and Sky and Fox Sports. Wimbledon wants to be a media broadcaster. They want to take all the assets that they've got and then use that as a piece of broadcast content, which completely repositions them. Totally different place, huge transformation. And they're recognizing that the only thing that can help them do that quickly is AI. And finally, where do you see um, the Watson platform going? What, what capabilities is it going to develop? And what applications is that going to have for, for brands and rights holders in sport? Um, couple of short-term applications. The easy one is to look at chatbots with natural language processing, which is almost stretching um, the definition of AI, because a lot of that is, um, is quite simple and rules-based, and it's just helping to speed up experiences online, just like you know when you're using your bank and you're looking at balance inquiries and things. Now, there's elements of that that can be AI-driven. And with Watson, that's really just natural language processing, so it's understanding tone and sentiment and keyword analysis and trends and topics and stuff, which that's great for looking at merchandise, looking at customer service requests or whatever. But when you kind of look forward... Um, here's two big stats that we're showing at the conference today. Um, the first one is that brands, and they say early adopter brands, but this is really any brand that's going to re-augment re its website towards visual and voice search. Now, whether that's video tagging of content, whether that's automatically tagging every single piece of merchandise that exists on your website, visual search and voice search. Um, visual search is probably going to see an uplift of we reckon 30% of digital revenue, like hardcore digital commerce revenue on your dot-com website, uplifted 30% by 2021. And when you look at things like voice search, which very big for consumers, very big for sports fans, you're looking at your Alexas and your Cortanas and Siri's and Google Homes and all that sort of stuff, between 30 and 50% of all browsing behavior is gonna happen without a screen by 2022. That's huge. Um, what's the most powerful technology in the world for visual tagging? and for voice technologies, Watson, the Watson APIs. So without this being a cheeky sales pitch, and I do apologize, but if you want to mess with this and have a look at it, all you need to do is go to ibm.com slash Watson. You can click on build with, 
and like any brand marketer can go down, look at the tools, mess with it, free demo environments, and just have a look around. Because the challenge in 2018 is preparing for that onslaught where disruption gets faster and faster. And visual and voice search are gonna be probably the key areas where AI is gonna help. Whether that's streaming content, pre-prepared content, helping create the content and automate it from scratch, or even just helping with checkouts and carts and merchandising. Um, it's up to brand marketers to be creative and to kind of invent those case studies that haven't been built yet. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back. Fascinating stuff from Jeremy Wade. I think AI is going to have some, some really far-reaching consequences to the way that people work, the way that people communicate uh, in, in ways that maybe we, we don't quite understand yet. Uh, something that he talked about a bit there and a bit on stage was um, the, uh, the, the, the jobs that AI is going to take off, the jobs that AI is going to be able to to automate, to assist with. I, funnily enough, was at a conference in China about a week ago. I was at the FIBA World Basketball Summit in Xi'an. Uh, I apologise for any butchery of that city's name. Um, Caitlin Chen from Tencent was presenting on that company's future plans. AI factoring in, they are going to begin using AI as a lot of media companies, I think, are going to plan to, to automate match reports and basic news stories Apparently, Mike, uh, an AI-generated news story or match report takes 0.46 seconds to produce, which is around 2,600 times faster than a human journalist. That's quite frightening. It's frightening. But they haven't worked out how to do AI-generated podcasts yet, so we're ahead of the curve for a little bit longer. That's where we're going to leave it for this time. More on the FIBA World Basketball Summit next time where we'll be hearing from and Mark Tatum and from Michael Long again um, as the new basketball season begins. But uh, for now, thank you to Michael. Thanks for having me, Owen, as always. Thanks to Jeremy Wade for his contribution and thanks to all of you for listening. Bye-bye. 